Good morning and welcome. Whether we are gathering in person here at the church or gathering from our various homes and other places, it is always good to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship our God and to give him praise. Our help truly is in the name of the Lord and we are called to worship this morning in words from Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. And as we gather together to worship the Lord our God this morning, we do so as always knowing that he loves us, he is present with us, and he greets us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Our Lord Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As God has instructed us in these great commandments and because we have not lived in full obedience, let us now confess our sins to God, trusting Christ alone as our Savior and Lord. May we pray. Eternal and merciful God, you have loved us with a love beyond our understanding, and you have set us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yet we have strayed from your way, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, through what we have done and what we have left undone. As we remember this morning the lavish gift of your grace, O oh God, we praise you and give you thanks that you forgive us now and always. Grant us today, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin and to rise daily to new life in Christ, who lives and reigns with you and in whose strong name we pray. Amen. Here are words you may trust, words that merit full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To all who confess their sins then and resolve to lead a new life, he says, your sins are forgiven. He also says, follow me. Now to the one who rules all worlds, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we continue to worship the Lord our God this morning, let's look to him in prayer. God, our creator and our heavenly father, we come to you today confessing our absolute need for you and for your grace. So often we have not lived as the people that you have called us to be in this world. So often we have not had the mind of Christ. So often, instead of setting our hope firmly on the things that are above where Christ is seated at your right hand, we have set them on the things of this world, the things that we can see and touch and possess, forgetting sometimes that what is seen 
all the pleasures of this world is only temporary and that it is what remains unseen to us now except by faith that is truly eternal. Help us then today and every day to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to fix our hope fully on the grace that will be given to us at the revelation of our Savior and help us to honor him as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that we have. As you have gathered us together this morning, now empower and equip us, we pray, to go out, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are the one at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. And as we submit to your holy and perfect will, seeking always to follow and obey, may we do all things without grumbling or disputing, that we may be blameless and innocent, your children without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you call us to shine as lights in a dark place. Graciously enable us to put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and empty talk from our mouths, to fully put off the old self with its practices, and at the same time to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other as you in Christ have forgiven us. Make us one, Lord, in faith, and in service, that we may faithfully and effectually proclaim the gospel to the community around us, that those who do not believe may see and hear and turn to you in repentance and faith, finding true life and light and love in Jesus Christ, your Son. Grant assurance to those who struggle with their faith. May your spirit testify with ours, bearing witness that we are your children. Grant comfort and even joy to those who sorrow, that we may grieve always as those who have hope beyond this life and this world. Lord, we pray that you would give healing to those who are ill, whether in body, mind, or spirit. In all of the trials and struggles that we endure in this world, draw us near. Remind us that you hold this world in sovereign love and that we belong not to earthly powers, demons, fate, or chance, but to you and that we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death. Even so, draw us near to you, we pray, and to one another, that in all these things we may stand together, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ, our Savior. We pray also for the world in which we live. We pray that you would guide those who govern us always, and especially during this time of pandemic. We pray for the leaders of our community and Mayor Snodgrass, we pray for our premier, Jason Kenney, and the government of this province. We pray for our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, his cabinet, and the government of our nation. We pray for all those whom you have put in various positions of authority in this world. And Father, we think especially of an election coming up very quickly in our neighbor to the south, and we pray that you would be at work guiding and directing that, Lord, you would be pleased to accomplish your purposes through whatever government you set in place. Let your kingdom come and your will be done, we pray, that we, in peace and freedom, may lead the lives to which you have called us as your people in this world, not using our freedom as a cloak for apathy, but making the most of every opportunity that you give, knowing that the days are evil. In these days, Lord, we pray especially for your church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We pray for our church. We pray for each and every member and for the leadership, the elders and deacons that you have given to equip us for the work of the ministry. 
We pray that you would give wisdom and grace that this church may grow and continue to bear witness to the gospel of your kingdom. We pray the same for each and every church in our community where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and where you are worshipped in spirit and truth. We pray this for the church around the world, especially in those places where our brothers and sisters face persecution and even death for the sake of your name. Defend your church. Defend us from the attacks of the evil one. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Keep your church strong and add to it. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. Lord, we eagerly await that day, recognizing that you are not slow to keep your promises, but rather you are patient with us, giving us time for repentance. Your patience is our salvation, Lord. Even so, we wait with tempered impatience for the fulfillment of your promise, for that day when your righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In the meantime, enable us to live lives of holiness and godliness, growing each and every day in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we come to you as he commanded, praying in his holy name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2. I will be reading verses 1 through 7 from the English Standard Version. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come, and I will remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord our God. May the Spirit give us ears to hear. Of the city of Ephesus, pastor and author David Chilton once wrote, the city of Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor, both in politics and in trade. It was an important cultural center as well, boasting such attractions as art, science, witchcraft, idolatry, gladiators, and persecution. Main Street ran from the harbor to the theater, and on the way, the visitor would pass the gymnasium and public baths, the public library, and the public brothel. Its temple to Artemis, or Diana, the goddess of fertility and nature in the wild, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
St. Luke tells us another interesting fact about this city, one that has important bearing on the seven messages as a whole. Ephesus was a hotbed of Jewish occultism and magical arts. Throughout the world of the first century, apostate Judaism was accommodating itself to numerous pagan ideologies and heathen practices, developing early strains of what later came to be known as Gnosticism, various hybrids of occult wisdom, rabbinical lore, mystery religion, and either ascetism or licentiousness or both, all stirred up together with a few bits and pieces of Christian doctrine. Chilton goes on, this mongrelized religious quackery was undoubtedly a primary spawning ground for the heresies that afflicted the churches of Asia Minor. Now in scripture, we first hear about the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 18 when the apostle Paul was passing through that region and he decided to leave Priscilla and Aquila in that city. Now eventually they were joined by Apollos whom they trained more adequately in the way of the Lord. And in Acts chapter 19, we are told that the apostle Paul himself returned And while he was there, he was reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God, first in the synagogue and later in the hall of Tyrannus. Luke wrote, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. In truth, the situation was so extraordinary that some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And would almost feel like a bit of comic relief if the thing weren't so deadly serious. But as that event became known in the region of Ephesus, Luke goes on to say, Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And one of several things that shines through in these stories from the book of Acts is that there can be no compromise between the gospel of the kingdom and any other so-called gospel. Just as Paul said in the book of Galatians, if anyone, even we or an angel from heaven, come to you proclaiming any other gospel, let them be accursed. And we see that in these stories in the book of Acts, Jewish exorcists who invoke the name of Jesus but don't truly believe in him, blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Jude, the brother of Jesus, said that. And when it came to what we might call New Age practices today, when it came to the sorceress practices of those engaged in the so-called magic arts, there was nothing to be done. There was no compromise. There was no syncretizing those magic arts with Christianity. Rather, they just destroyed their books and their talismans, even though it was a significant financial loss and it led eventually to a riot. Now, I want us to make note of this. Because I think this kind of holy intolerance becomes very important in understanding the letter that Jesus sent to the church at Ephesus by way of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2. We read of a similar thing in Paul's letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, in which he wrote, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul appointed Timothy to serve as the pastor at Ephesus, at least for a time. And he instructed him to carry on his ministry there with that same kind of intolerance toward anything that undermined the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some would argue the timetable based on the traditional date for the book of Revelation, and that's okay. A lot of people believe that it was written around AD 96, and that's okay. But if we accept an earlier date for the revelation, as many scholars do, based on internal evidence to the book itself, then it's very possible that this epistle from Jesus, the letter found in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, was also addressed to the church at Ephesus by way of Timothy. And given both the contents and the context, this would make a great deal of sense. That letter in Revelation chapter 2 begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So just a couple of things before we dive deeper here. First, it's worth a mention that the words that follow are in fact the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden candlesticks. That is, these are the words of Jesus Christ himself. I don't want to make too much of this because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and so on. But this letter that we have and, and all of the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are word for word from Christ himself. Regardless of what theory of inspiration we may hold on to, Jesus is dictating these letters to John. This is either a letter from Jesus Christ or it is a lie. There's no middle ground here. Also note the way that Jesus refers to himself in terms from the vision that we saw in Revelation chapter 1. He's going to do this in every letter that he gives John to send on to the churches. And it's important because he will reveal himself in terms of that vision in such a way that he will highlight some aspect of the message that follows. 
In this case, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Bearing in mind, of course, that according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the stars are the angels. They are the ministers or messengers of those churches. In the context here, we have to understand that the angels of the church are, are not some celestial being. There are angels like that in the book of Revelation, but here, when Jesus addresses the angels of the churches, he's using that word in a much more mundane sense, in the way that Luke used it when he talked about Jesus sending messengers, angelos, ahead of him to prepare for the, the, the observance of the Passover. Of this text, Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, it is the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ that the ministers of the gospel are in his hand. He directs all their motions. He disposes of them into their several orbs. He fills them with light and influence. He supports them or else they would soon be falling stars. They are instruments in his hand, and all the good they do is done by his hand with them. And in this letter, Jesus highlights the prophetic aspect of his anointing, speaking about the ministers that he holds in his hand and about the way that he walks among the church. He highlights that aspect of his anointing because he is addressing the Ephesian church's participation in that calling. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. See, there's that holy intolerance for anything and anyone who would undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And more still, verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we will talk more about the Nicolaitans and what they probably believed in weeks to come. But even at this level, we are not used to this kind of talk. It's not something that happens very often in the church today. But speaking to the Ephesian elders, the angels of the church at Ephesus, in other words, speaking to them in Acts 20, the apostle Paul said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which God has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, now remember, he's speaking to the elders from the Ephesian church here. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And since we've already noted that Timothy was a pastor and an elder in the Ephesian church, Paul wrote in a similar vein to him in the epistle of 1 Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in the text before us then, Jesus is commending the Ephesian church for doing the very thing that Paul had instructed them to do. As one author has written, in many ways, the church at Ephesus had their act together. This was the church that had received the magnificent epistle to the Ephesians, and the apostle Paul had labored there. They had internalized the teaching, and they were faithful in their defense of it. But not all is well. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus continues, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. And it is so important that we would hear this. It's important because Jesus, the one speaking, is the Lord of the church, the church at Ephesus, the church universal, and this church, our church. Verse 7 opens with the sentence, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even though this message was first given to the Ephesians by way of their pastor in the first century, Christ speaks by his Spirit, not only to the Ephesians, but also to all those who have ears to hear. And he calls us not to cease defending the faith. That's not what this is about. He commends the church for doing just that. But to make certain that we are doing it for the right reasons and with the right motives. Again, David Chilton wrote, It is important to note that even the most rigorous concern for orthodoxy does not automatically mean an absence of love. It is only a perversion of orthodoxy that results in hardness toward brethren. Christ does not criticize the Ephesians for being too orthodox, but for leaving, forsaking the love which they had at first. The question of doctrine versus love is, biblically speaking, a non-issue. In fact, it is a specifically pagan issue seeking to put asunder what God has joined together. Christians are required to be both orthodox and loving, and a lack of either will eventually result in the judgment of God, which is why it calls for repentance. If we have fallen prey to the temptation to be orthodox in our hating, but unorthodox in our loving, we can never tolerate. We must, in fact, hate that which Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, hates. As in verse 6, yet this you have, for this I commend you. In other words, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We have to hate what Jesus, the Lord of the church, hates. But we have to be careful that our zeal to defend the faith is based on our desire for the honor of the Lord and not some perceived slight against ourselves. When David, the shepherd who would eventually be king, 
was fleeing King Saul. There were two occasions when he might have solved his problem by committing regicide and just killing Saul. But on both of those occasions, David held back, caring more for the honor of God and his anointed than he did for his own honor. And such must be our concern for the church. It is Christ's church. And as it says in Jude verse 3, we are called to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But just as Jude would write just a few verses later, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been taken captive to do his will. Where we have failed, where our holy intolerance has degenerated into an unholy intolerance, where we have hated the sin and the sinner, not just hated the sin and and love the sinner, where we have been quarrelsome and unloving, where we have been more concerned for our own honor than for the honor of the Lord, we must have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches here in Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. It's never easy this repentance, but the admonition, the call to repent here comes with a promise as well. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who hears and remembers from which, whence he has fallen and, and repents, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Again, In the words of the old Puritan Matthew Henry, the Christian life is a warfare against sin, Satan, the world, and the flesh. It is not enough that we engage in this warfare, but we must pursue it to the very end. We must never yield to our spiritual enemies, but fight the good fight till we gain the victory. That which is here promised to the victors is that they shall eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. They shall have that perfection of holiness and that confirmation therein, which Adam would have had if he had gone well through the course of his trial. So all who persevere in their Christian trial and warfare shall derive from Christ as the tree of life, perfection and confirmation in holiness and happiness in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
May we pray. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are pliable to your will, and an understanding mind that, having listened to your word, we may put into practice that which we have heard. And so, by our obedient faithfulness, bring honor and glory and praise to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. These things we pray in his name. Amen. We are sent on our way this morning with words from Hebrews chapter 13. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere people do to me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And now may the God of peace who through the blood of that eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.